I'm going to sit this morning a little bit easier. If you were here, if you were here last week, um, you know that I, I broke my foot. So that's getting better, and I appreciate all the, the, uh, the kind words. I appreciate the fact that I can come here and get sympathy from you all. That's nice. Um, that ran out at home about four days ago. Um, you know you're getting better when they just stop waiting on you and you're suffering. And um, uh, <laughs> as I said, it's nice to come here and get some sympathy. Um, but it, it, a lot of people have asked, I'm doing okay. It's doing much better. Um, just a few more weeks of rest. So, so I'm going to sit as best I can. Just uh, I, I, the only mistake I made this morning, I've been wearing um, Crocs this week because they're flat bottom, they're easy to, and so this morning I thought, well, I can put my dress shoes on. Yeah, probably wasn't a good idea. So um, anyway, so that, yeah. The, uh, the text uh, this morning comes from 1 Thessalonians. We're going to look at the first 10 verses of, of Paul's letter there to the church in, in Thessalonica. Now here's some Bible trivia for you. And I'm sure I've, I've shared this before, but Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, is believed by most scholars to be the first book of the New Testament that was actually written. It's the first of Paul's letters, but actually written before the Gospels were put to paper. Now, obviously the Gospels occurred before this, clearly, but remember that much of the story was in that oral tradition until it was written down. Uh, and so that the dating, the earliest datings that we have is that Thessalonians is not only Paul's first letter, but it's the first, le- the first book of the, of the New Testament that was written. And, um, and so as, as I read this this morning, I want you to not only hear the words, but hear the spirit behind the words. Hear the emotion, if you will, behind Paul's words to the church there. Begin at verse 1. Paul, Silas, and Timothy. To the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because the gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you not only in Macedonia, And Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols, to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Friends and sisters, we pray God's blessing here on the reading of his word. Let us pray. Lord, Speak to us in these moments together in this, the reading of your word, in this time of worship, in the all of worship. May your Holy Spirit speak your truth, your hope, your peace into the lives of each of us who have entered here and draw us close to you. We pray in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. 
If you were here last week, you know that um, Dad kind of gave you a quiz, a uh, little bit on Hamlet, if you knew Hamlet, and he kind of he quizzed that. I'll give you an easier quiz this morning, see if you can finish this statement. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, bestowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Among those are life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. The pursuit of happiness, what an interesting phrase we find there in, in that introductory statement of the Declaration of Independence, of the statement of our, of our founding fathers, of, of the foundation of their um, rebellion, if you will, their pushback against England, is, is this desire to have life, liberty, and the opportunity to pursue happiness. And, uh, I, I think it's a little bit curious if you think about the, the, the time period, if you think about the Enlightenment, you think about the, the goals and objectives of those men and women of, of the time period. I mean, we think about democracy and, and freedom. Uh, we think about uh, the opportunity to, to self-govern. We think about all these ideals that they, that they strove for, liberty. But the pursuit of happiness is an interesting statement, interesting pursuit. And, and I think it speaks to, to a very fundamental truth of, of who we are, that in spite of or even uh, in addition to um, elevated intellect, um, fire for democracy, uh, a passion for social and political revolution, in addition to all those things, at the heart of us, at the heart, I think, of each of us is a desire to experience happiness, is to experience those moments of, of, of joy, of contentment, whatever kind of words that we want to use to describe what, what happiness means to us. It's part of how we were created, part of, I think, the deep longing that we all share. It's interesting that at the end of Martin Luther's life, Martin Luther, that um, key figure of the, the Protestant Reformation that was part of that wave of change that swept over Europe, at the end of his long life, impactful life, he said that he could count on one hand the number of days of true happiness he had experienced in his life. One hand, the number of days of true happiness and contentment that he experienced in his life. And he was longing himself for, for those moments. And it's interesting because he measured them in the span of a day. Martin Luther measured happiness in the length of a day. So he was looking for a complete day of happiness. And, and he couldn't recall more than five. I think experience teaches us that, that happiness sometimes comes in smaller bursts. It can be sustained, certainly. But it comes in moments and, and experiences and, and um, bursts of, 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 of joy, contentment, uh, that, that happen in, in the course of our life. Very rarely, I think, do we, do we sustain it. Do we get to hold on to it for long periods of time? And, and, and very often it comes to us from external sources. We, we look for it in external sources. Let me think of We get conditioned for this when we are children, when we are five and six years old, and we get to go to the greatest place that a five and six-year-old can go to have dinner, which is what? McDonald's. 
Exactly. Five and six-year-olds as kids, especially if you grew up like I did where you didn't go out to eat a lot. It wasn't a regular part of the rhythm of, of family life. I mean, to be able to go to McDonald's, that was a treat. You know, you're a kid. You don't know any better. Quality of food means nothing. It's the experience. And what do you want as a five-year-old when you go to McDonald's? You want a happy meal. You want a happy meal. Because that's where it comes from, that little plastic toy that will last for 15 minutes but will bring unadulterated joy for 15 minutes. You know, we find it in these external places. We don't not grow that. It just changes. It just changes the places we look to experience happiness. I can remember, this is, this is kind of sad. This is a, a sad confession because we recognize that fleeting nature. But I remember uh, on our honeymoon, the day that, that Tony and I left on a cruise. It was our first cruise together. We'd looked forward to it for, for months and months and planned it. We were, you know, the stress of the wedding. We were away, and it was just the two of us. And I can remember we were standing on the deck of the cruise ship. We hadn't even sailed yet. And I'm looking out over the, over the, the edge, and I got this feeling of, of sadness. And this is why I thought to myself, man, this is going to be over in seven days. <laughs> Isn't that sad? That's ridiculous. But immediately I recognized that this thing that I had looked forward to, that I knew was going to bring happiness, had a time stamp on it. And in seven days I was going to have to get off this boat and go back to whatever the real world was at that time. It was going to be over. And so for a moment, and it, it stuck in my memory because I knew how ridiculous it was. I know how ridiculous the thought was. But the reality is happiness for us seems fleeting. It seems momentary. It seems it, 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 it's elusive. If, if we... Ex- Experience it is as something that we can grasp hold of and, and take hold of. Maybe the reality is that, that happiness isn't so much something that we find, but it's something that we need to cultivate. It's something that we need to pursue through our habits and practices to instill a deeper understanding of what happiness looks like, what happiness means. The same time of the Enlightenment, the, the founding fathers, the coining of that phrase, pursuit of happiness, there was another um, figure that would emerge that is very familiar to a lot of us as Methodists, and his name is John Wesley, same time period. And like the founding fathers, he talked a lot about happiness, except he equated it and looked at it a little differently. He said happiness is holiness. Over and over, that's what happiness is holiness. And in over 70 of his sermons, he talked about the pursuit of the Christian life should be happiness. Now, I can get behind that. I don't think any of you are going to come up and argue with me and say, man, now I'd really like a little less of that. A little less happiness. Too much of that in my life. And so when Wesley says that's a pursuit of the Christian life, I go, yeah, that's, that's pretty good. I can, I can get behind that. Jesus, in the Beatitudes, we always translate them as blessed are the but you know what an, an, an equally valid translation of that word in the, in the Greek and Hebrew is? It's lucky. Lucky are those. Happy are those. Those words are synonymous. And so I can get behind pursuing happiness. But the problem is I think we often misunderstand what happiness looks like, what it, what it means. We, we get into a please God mentality. I get into a please God mentality, a please God prayer life. And let me tell you what that means. This is how you know you're in a please God prayer life because this is what your prayers sound like. Please God, if I could only have. If I could only have that job promotion that will mean a higher salary, that, that's what I need because it'll bring happiness. 
please, God, if, if I could only have this relationship, if this relationship would work out. Why? Because it'll bring happiness. Please, God, if this will only work out for me, it'll bring happiness. Now, now let me pause for a moment. There's nothing wrong with please God prayers. That's honest prayer. Do not hear me discouraging that. The danger is when our prayer life and our understanding of happiness gets limited by that because those are the fleeting moments. Because anybody who's ever been blessed with a job promotion and a higher salary knows that it does satisfy for a little while. Everyone knows that, that relationships are wonderful. They can be wonderful blessings, but they're also a lot of work and investment. They satisfy in that way for a little while. But we do that. I do that. I'll, I'll tell you in, in far more superficial ways. A couple weeks ago, again, vacation stories, before Tony and I left for our time away to celebrate our anniversary, we went to Fort Lauderdale Sunday night, and we spent the night with a good friend of mine, uh, or a good friend of ours in ministry. We visited, caught up, went to bed that night, and I started to feel myself getting sick. You know those symptoms you can self-identify, the sore throat, the things that are going to happen. Now, this is the first day of our vacation, our long-planned vacation, and I, was, I spent an hour that night in please God prayers. Please God, not, not this week. Not, please, God, please do not let me get sick this week. And just, I mean, and, and I know, and I knew it was a superficial prayer. But it mattered to me. But it was a please, God, because this is going to be a week of happiness. And if I get sick, it's going to rob my happiness. And God answered the prayer. I didn't get sick. I broke my foot. But, uh, you know, <laughs> so be careful. God has a sense of humor. <laughs> but the point is, you know, we can identify that. And, and that makes sense, and that's understandable, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But see, that's not what Wesley's talking about. That's not what Paul's talking about. Paul's talking about not an understanding of a prayer life in which we're seeking please God, but the expression of life in which we seek to live a way that is pleasing to God. So when our lives are dictated by a please God mentality. It's not a petition for what God is doing for us, but it's an expression of a life that desires to live, be lived out in such a way that the motives of our heart are to do those things that please God. Because what Wesley understood, what Paul understood, is that true happiness is found in a life that is lived in that kind of an expression. An expression to please God, because it no longer becomes contingent upon the external, but it becomes connected to the eternal. Paul writes 1 Thessalonians early in his ministry, first letter out, but he has already experienced the hardships that come with following Jesus. He's already been imprisoned. He's already been beaten. He's already been ostracized. He's already been um, demeaned. I mean, he's experienced all the things that will become the characteristics of his discipleship. And yet, in the midst of that, and as the church is beginning to experience that, he writes this letter that is dripping with gratitude and love and appreciation and faith. I mean, it is just, if you read what he writes and the heart in which it comes, you'd be hard-pressed to think that he's experiencing anything less than the very best of life but we know that's quite the opposite. In fact, if you looked at Paul from the external, disconnected from the story of his life, you'd have a hard time believing there's any way this guy could be happy because there's nothing about what seems to be going on around his life that would determine happiness or that would dictate happiness. And yet he's full of that kind 
of happiness because he is connected with the truth of faith. His life has become about that desire to please God. In fact, that's the language he'll use in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4. He, goes, he says, it's not my desire to please other people, or I would even add, even please himself, but I seek only to please God who tests the heart. In chapter 4, he's going to go on and talk about what a life that pleases God looks like. But understand, that's the heart. See, our challenge is, the, the Constitution says it's, I'm sorry, the, the Declaration of Independence says it's an unalienable right to pursue happiness. The problem is, it's elusive. And for most of us, it feels like it slips right between our fingers. You know that less than 30% of Americans identify themselves as happy? I mean, that means, look at one in three of us, at most, would call ourselves happy. So either it's impossible to achieve or we're missing something we're kind of looking in the wrong direction. And so it becomes a focal point. I, you're, you're not going to believe this actually happened this way, but this morning, as I was scrolling through some social media and some people I follow, uh, Len Sweet, who I've talked about before, who's somebody I read and follow, he put a link on his social media page that linked to the World Happiness Report. I'm not making this thing up. I read this morning, or I opened up and downloaded the World Happiness Report. This is the third, I think the third year they've... they've um, published the World Happiness Report. You want to know what it said? Got no idea. It was 172 pages. I wouldn't read that much this morning. <laughs> but it ranks, it's, it's the connection of happiness and social policy. And it ranks the happiest countries in the world. I don't know how it ranks. As America, we squeeze into the top 20. You know what number one is? Sweden. Sweden. It's fascinating. I haven't read the report, so I don't know why, but they seem to be happier than us. But, but we pursue that. We look for it. Yeah. Um, Girl Scouts. Those of you that are Girl Scouts are part of it. A couple years ago, I was reading this. They, they've changed some of the merit badges that they pursue. There's now a badge that the, the young ladies, the women can, or the girls can achieve. It's called the Science of Happiness. And in it, what they do is they journal and they come up with practices and habits that they believe that these young ladies can instill in their lives that will create the feeling of happiness, and then they, they're their own science experiment. And then they reflect on whether or not they're working. Which, again, I think these are noble pursuits, but we're always looking to find happiness. We want the formula, E equals MC squared. Well, what's that formula for happiness? And so we go and we read articles. I, I pulled stuff online. You can uh, go to WebMD and you can read the... Um, well, actually, if you start, WikiHow has the three essential characters for happiness... WebMD has the seven characteristics that you need to build into your life for happiness. Real Simple has the ten characteristics that you need to pursue for true happiness. TED Talks, those of you who follow TED Talks if, uh, recently, they had a series of, of um, seminars, of, of speeches, from 13 happiness experts. That's a title I want. That would be cool. Go talk to Chris. He's an happiness expert. That could be worse things you could call me than that. But, but we're constantly looking for it. We're constantly wanting to find the key to happiness. I got a fortune cookie the other day. John and I had lunch. We went to the Chinese restaurant, hence the reason I had a fortune cookie. And uh, it said, you will achieve in your old age material wealth and comfort. And I thought, I like that. That sounds good. That sounds like a pretty good formula for happiness. But is it Really? I mean, I would like to test it, 
but I don't know that it's going to bring happiness because it's looking to the external. Paul says that the heart of happiness is a desire to please God. St. Augustine, Gaudium de Veritate, which means joy in the truth. Well, Paul knew the truth. It was Jesus. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And he knew that in spite of all these circumstances on the external periphery of his life, he found joy, utmost joy, in a heart that sought to do that which God had called him to do. It didn't mean he rejoiced in all the stuff he experienced, but he knew that, that true happiness was deeper than the feeling. See, for us, we often attach it to the feeling. Paul says it goes much, much deeper than that. It's lived out in a life that follows the call of God. Now, what's interesting about that is that I, I read some of those articles about the keys to true happiness. And um, there were some overlapping principles that I encountered over and over again. Things like the key to happiness is to live a life that is a, puts the needs of others above yourself. Uh, the key to happiness is to live a life that's connected to other people in a community. The key to life, to happiness is to be a part of something that is greater than yourself. And the, the key to happiness is to, to give in such a way that you, you leave a positive impact. You make a difference. And I was to think, you know what? That sounds pretty familiar to me. That sounds an awful lot like the same things Jesus taught. Maybe there's something to this please God passion that really unlocks what happiness means and what it looks like and how is experienced. And it's not just the feeling. You can live a life marked by happiness when you don't feel happy. Same way we talk about love. You can love other people when the emotion isn't there. In fact, sometimes it is the action that drives the feeling. Um, uh, Thurgood once said that it's much easier um, to, to act happy and create the feeling than it is to, create, than to feel happy and create the action. In other words, sometimes actions, Jesus says, where your uh, treasure is there, your heart will be also. Sometimes actions follow. And we're called and challenged to live into that. And it's not always going to be an emotional response. But it's a recognition that our lives are given to something greater. It is that heart to please God and to live according to that call upon his life. And it's amazing the way God pours into us and begins to sustain happiness in our lives in ways that are much deeper than those fleeting. And those fleeting things are good, the vacations, the th those are all great things. But I hope our understanding of happiness goes deeper. There's a cartoon I came across that had a man sitting at a fortune teller. And uh, she, the fortune said, she looked at him and said, happiness is right around the corner. But if you want the street address, it's going to cost you a little extra. Okay? Now here's the thing. You think, Happiness is around the corner, and it doesn't cost any extra. We know the way. Paul tells us the way. Please, God. Please, God. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, that, my prayer is that would be the call upon our lives. That would be our passion, to live lives that seek to, to please you and to recognize that in doing that, we we live into the fullness of who you've created and called us to be, that we do become blessed. We experience a happiness is much deeper, deeper than the fleeting moments of life. Birth that in us, we pray, today and always, in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.